0: announcement. I am now offering early ad-free episodes plus bonus content directly through the Apple Podcasts app. This is the same stuff you get at the $3 tier on Patreon, only you don't have to go over to Patreon to subscribe. You can subscribe right inside your Apple Podcast app. If you do listen in Apple Podcasts and you don't subscribe to the extra content, it will still pop up, but it is clearly marked "subscribe" or subscriber or something like that. So feel free to ignore it. But if you want to get ad-free episodes or bonus content and you don't want to have it delivered through a third party like Patreon, this is another option. It's in Apple Podcasts, pretty easy to sign up but don't worry, I'm not going behind a paywall with the regular episodes. They will still be up on Mondays. This is just for people who would like to pay to not have to listen to ads and get an extra bonus episode a month. So there if you're interested, and I do thank everyone so much for their support. When Sonia Ivanhoff disappeared into the night, it took a scared witness coming forward to lead to an unlikely suspect. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. I wanna first say thank you so much for feedback on the history series that I released last week. I don't plan to release content on my weeks off usually, so don't get used to it. But this just seemed so fitting with the timing and that I had the research already done on most of it. So I do want to give a huge, huge shout out and thank you to Lainey from True Crime Fan Club for lending her amazing voiceover skills on the opening quotes for those episodes. Each one had a different quote, and Lainey did a phenomenal job with those. And she's not just a great voice. She's a great friend and a fantastic podcaster, go check out True Crime Fan Club. And another show I want to shout out is Reverie True Crime. I cover these missing and murdered Indigenous women cases here, and I always like to shout out other podcasts that are also covering these cases because these cases have been ignored for so long in this field, in podcasting. Reverie True Crime recently released an episode on Sunshine Wood. That's a case out of Manitoba that I've looked at, and there really isn't a lot of information on the case, but Reverie did a great job with what is out there. Again, that's Reverie True Crime, and I'll leave that and True Crime Fan Club and any other podcasts that I shout out in the show notes. Today's Crime Lines episode is an MMIW case out of Alaska. The last time I covered an Alaskan case, I really screwed up with the pronunciations, and I do still feel badly about that. I've done a lot more work on pronunciation since then, making sure that I'm listening to multiple speakers and multiple sources. One thing I have learned over the last few years is that I cannot just listen to news broadcasts and assume I'm getting the most correct pronunciation. They're often using the most anglicized version of the words, and I should have realized it before. As someone with a common American first name and an English last name, I never hear my name or my city or my ancestral lands mispronounced on the news. And this is a reminder to me that I need to think outside of my own experience more often. But let's get into today's episode. Sonia Ivanhoff grew up in Unilakleet, which is a small town on the Norton Sound. So this is western Alaska right on the Bering Sea. A lot of people pronounce the name of this town as Uniclete and leave out the middle syllable, which is also an acceptable way of saying that. In asking around, I have learned that both Unaclete and Unaclete are acceptable. Unaclete is 77% Alaska Native, which Alaska Native is a broad term for multiple groups of Indigenous people. Unaclete is the southern point of where the Inupiat live. And the town's name actually means from the southern side. The city is also just north of the Yupik people, and the Athabascans live just to the east. On the Justice for Native People website, Sonia is listed as a Yupik, though Unilakli is an intersection for all three. The larger groupings of Alaska natives, like where I'm saying Yupik and Athabascan, is not a reflection of how the indigenous people of Alaska necessarily define themselves. They aren't tribal units so much as an indication that they share a similar language and similar customs. There are regional and village level tribal governments, but there isn't a single Inupia tribe or tribal government because it isn't a singular group. The town of Unileklit has always been a major hub for the area. It has been continuously inhabited since around 200 B.C. based on archaeological findings. Because of its location and access to waterways, it was very important for trade. It was in the 1830s that the Russian-American company built a trading post there. And it remains today a cargo hub for the region. The area of Alaska we are talking about is remote. The cities are not accessible by roads. You get there pretty much by plane, occasionally by boat, and seasonally by snowmobile. So cargo is flown to Unalakleet, where it is then dispersed and flown to other communities. One of the most remote places is the island of Little Diomede. It only has a heliport, except in the winter when the ice is thick enough that small planes can land on a makeshift icy runway. I spent a significant portion of the time I was supposed to be researching this case learning about Little Diomede, and it is actually pretty interesting if you want to even just look up the Wikipedia on it. But back to Unalakleet, it was also home to a residential school run by the Evangelical Covenant Church, and indigenous children from all over western Alaska were sent there for a faith-based education. In 2021, the Evangelical Covenant Church, which ran that school, voted to reject the, quote, doctrine of discovery, which was the theological justification used by European Christians for dominating areas already belonging to indigenous people. This doctrine of discovery is what they used to justify opening up a residential school for indigenous children and removing them from their communities and their families. The Doctrine of Discovery isn't a single document. It's truly a doctrine, meaning a belief, and it began in the 12th century. So this was well established by the time a Christian mission was first set up in Unilaklid by the Mission Covenant Church of Sweden, which opened in 1887. Through various decrees over literally centuries, it was established that if an explorer was under a Christian king in Europe, any land they quote-unquote discovered would be claimed as their country's land owing to the superiority and divine right of Christianity. This was the basis for something U.S. schoolchildren learn about, which is Manifest Destiny, That is what spurred a lot of westward expansion in the United States. The three points of Manifest Destiny were, one, that the American people and their institutions were superior, two, that they had a mission to spread this and remake the continent in the image of the United States, and three, that it was God's will that this happen. Many Christian denominations have formally rejected the doctrine of discovery, and many, like the Evangelical Covenant Church, have acknowledged their own role in damaging Indigenous communities and individuals. Unilakleet and the other remote communities in the area are now covered by the Bering Sea School District, which is a public school system and has schools even in areas with only 20 students in their kindergarten through 12th grade schools. Even Little Diomede, which has under 200 total residents, has a school where students can learn while still living at home and with their communities. Sonia Ivanov and her five siblings all attended school through the Bering Sea School District. Their school had around 200 students total across the 13 grade levels. Sonia was a star basketball player as well as an honor student. After high school, Sonia wanted to attend college in Hawaii, but she needed to take some time off to work and save up money. So Sonia did what a lot of people looking for work in the area did, and she moved to a larger community. She moved to the city of Nome. There, she worked as a secretary at the hospital, where she was a well-liked employee who was known for being funny and upbeat. Nome, Alaska is a city of around 3,500 people. Nome and Una, luckily, would be several hours away by car if there was a road to connect them. But there isn't, unless you hit the Iditarod Trail with a sled dog. You do have to fly between the cities. Sunny moved in with her best friend, Timari Tuareg. On Sunday, August 10th, 2003, Sonia had been living in Nome for about a year. She and Timmery went out with friends pretty late to have some drinks. Sonia had a beer, but she wasn't feeling well, so she told Timmery she was going to head home. It was after 1 a.m. on August 11th when she left, and she did leave on foot. When Timory got home, she realized... Sonia wasn't there. So she called some friends in the morning thinking maybe Sonia had decided to stay over with someone, but no one had seen her. After not hearing from her for the rest of the day, Timmery called the police on the morning of the 12th after Sonia didn't show up for work. She didn't report Sonia missing, but she was checking to see had Sonia maybe been arrested or had there been an accident, but there was nothing. Timmery kept calling people, including Sonia's family, hoping to find her and learn that she was just overreacting. But she wasn't overreacting, and Timory reported 19-year-old Sonia Ivanov missing around 5 p.m. on Tuesday, August 12th. It had been nearly two full days since anyone had seen or heard from Sonya. The police, of course, considered the possibility Sonya had left on her own, but it was ruled out pretty quickly. She had no history of being out of touch with people or disappearing like that, and all of her things were in her apartment. So they launched a massive search for Sonia on August 13th, calling in search and rescue, volunteers, and even the family came and participated in the search. One of the searchers was a man named John Larson. He had been an attorney and a volunteer firefighter in Nome. He joined the search in the area around where Sonia lived, an area that was pretty well searched with no results. John talked to his wife, and they decided to head out to a more remote area, with John thinking if something bad had happened to Sonia, there was more of a chance she was outside of the town. So they drove north of Nome towards the outskirts, and they were not more than five minutes from downtown when John noticed a dirt access road a lot of the grass on and around it was overgrown and it had been muddy due to recent rain. To John, based on the grass and the dirt, it looked like the road had recently been used. This road was a one-lane dirt path that led to what looks like a mine or a gravel pit, so there wasn't really a good reason for anyone to have been driving on it. John parked his car and walked down the road a little bit when he saw a body in the bushes. He got back into his car and drove to the police station and then had them follow him back to the spot. Immediately, the officers could see that this was Sonia Ivanhoff, only 19 years old. Sonia's body was just about 10 feet from the road, and there was also a pool of blood in the road not far from where her body was. So it looked like whoever killed Sonia had killed her in the road and then rolled her body into the bushes. The thing was, though, there were no obvious injuries to point to the source of the blood. There were no visible stab wounds or gunshot wounds to explain how Sonia died. But the Nome police also didn't look too hard at that point for a very good reason. The Nome Police Department at the time had a chief and around seven officers, Though Nome has higher-than-average violent crime rates, they don't see many murders. They knew, just looking at the scene, that they needed an actual forensic team to come in and process it. And they needed the help of investigators with more experience with murder cases. So the Nome police did as little as possible until they could get the state in from Anchorage to aid in the investigation calling in for help and more resources from the jump. We love to see it, but there was an issue here. Alaska doesn't have a lot of roads, so you cannot drive from Anchorage to Nome. You have to fly. So you have your choice of the 945 morning flight or the 330 afternoon flight, and that is it. So the crime scene investigation team was a solid 15 to 20 hours out from arriving. The gnome police had to preserve the scene. In the Alaskan wilderness, where there are large animals, and on top of this, a rainstorm was coming in. It had already rained the night Sonia went missing, and so they knew they likely lost some evidence of her body had been there the whole time. They didn't want to lose any more. They took as many pictures as they could of the body, the position it was in, the roadway and tire tracks, and everything else in case it was washed away or disturbed. And then they covered the ground with tarps, lots and lots of plastic, and they waited. The crime scene investigators and state police got there the next day, August 14th, and they found the scene was very well preserved in spite of the rain. Sonya had been found nude, with the exception of one sock on her foot. A search of the area did not turn up any of Sonya's items, like her clothing, her apartment key, or her personal ID, which she would have always kept on her, and she generally used an armband to hold them. In examining the body at the scene, a state trooper found that Sonia had been shot once in the back of the head. The gnome police hadn't seen the entry wound because it was a small caliber, a .22, and her thick hair had covered it up. It was pretty much impossible to see it while keeping a distance and preserving the scene like the police had done. The Nome police and the state troopers documented the signs that a vehicle had been down the road recently, which is what pulled John's attention in that direction to begin with. But in addition to obvious things like tire tracks, there was a branch near the body that had blue paint transfer on it. The thought was it could have been her killer's vehicle that scraped up against the branch. The sample was taken into evidence, though there was always a chance it wasn't connected. It's not like they could time stamp a paint transfer. After being examined at the scene, Sonia's body was sent to Anchorage for an autopsy. It was determined that the bullet wound was the cause of death and it was fired at very close range. Sonia also had minor bruising on her face, neck, and chest, indicating some sort of physical altercation. But the medical examiner did say that the bruises could have been from a forced undressing. Though Sonia was found nude, there were no signs of a sexual assault. There was also no physical evidence from the killer left on her body. Perhaps there would have been such evidence on her clothing, and that's why the killer took those with them. But Sonia's body had been left in the rain, so if there was trace DNA or a fingerprint on her, it had washed away. Scrapings of her fingernails gave no evidence either. While the state investigators focused on the forensic evidence, the Nome police started tracking down friends and associates, anyone connected to Sonia who she may have had a conflict with or who would have known who she had a conflict with. One thing they did was go over her photographs to see who she was in pictures with. And in one, they noticed Sonia had a bruise on her arm, a pretty significant one. Timmery said that it was from a friend named Kunik. He wasn't exactly a boyfriend, but he and Sonia had kissed a few times and he did like her. The bruise came from a time when they were roughhousing. Kunik had a reputation for having an anger problem, with Timmery characterizing it as, quote, going psycho to the police. Kunik also drove a blue truck, like the paint from the branch, near Sonia's body. So the Nome police went to interview him and got a search warrant for his truck. Kunick spoke with the police, but he didn't exactly sound like he was happy to do so. He denied having seen or even talked to Sonya in the two weeks before her disappearance. But when they towed his truck to the police station to be processed, they found three rifles, blue tarps folded in the back that had blood on them, and a pair of shoes also with blood on them. This seemed promising until none of the three guns were a match to the murder weapon. The truck's tire prints weren't a match. The blue paint wasn't a match. And then the blood turned out to be animal blood. It was from a recent hunting trip. There was nothing linking Kunik to the murder, so the investigation had to move on to other leads. A very promising tip came in from a woman named Florence. Florence knew she had important information about Sonia's case, but she was nervous about coming forward with it because she was worried about retaliation. Putting that fear to the side, Florence called the police early on and gave her information directly to the chief. Expecting the known police to follow up with her, Florence grew more and more anxious when they didn't, and that's because of the nature of what she saw. On the night Sonia Ivanov went missing, Florence was with her sister hanging out on the porch of their mother's home. Sonia walked by her. Florence said the two of them exchanged greetings, and Sonia kept walking. Then Florence saw... One of Gnome's police vehicles drive past Sonya, slow down, turn around at the intersection, and then pull up to her. The officer rolled down the window, chatted with Sonya for a little bit before Sonya got into the vehicle. This would have been shortly before one thirty in the morning. This makes Florence possibly the last person to see Sonia alive. And when she saw her, she was getting into a gnome police vehicle. And then when the tip wasn't followed up on, I imagine Florence was afraid a cover-up was happening. And she and her sister were the witnesses to it. It is not clear on why this was not followed up on when the tip came in. It wasn't until about three weeks later that an officer reviewing the case file saw the call logged. He decided to follow up on this, and Florence gave her statement. She said she also sent a video statement to the Alaska State Troopers at some point. There was no record of Sonia having been picked up by an officer that night. So if someone had done it, they didn't write it down or call it in. The Nome Police Department had three police vehicles. They were all Ford Expeditions, which are SUVs. Two of them were nearly identical to each other, and one of them was newer and a little bit different. There were two officers on duty that night, Officer Matthew Owens was driving the older expedition, and Officer Stan Pascoya was in the newer SUV. With this information, the Nome police notified the state troopers that there was possible law enforcement involvement in this case. Nome shouldn't be investigating their own officers, so the troopers spoke with both Matthew Owens and Stan Pascoya and asked them to take polygraphs in Anchorage, and sit for full interviews. Both of them agreed, and the flights were booked for September 24th. Then, the night before the polygraphs, on September 23rd, one of the Nome police vehicles, car 321, went missing from the station parking lot. The officer who usually used that vehicle, Byron Redburn, was called at home around 12.45 a.m., and asked if he had taken the car home with him or perhaps he left it somewhere to be serviced. Redburn said the vehicle should be parked outside the station. At the time, the Nome police generally left the vehicles with the keys inside. However, the doors had an electronic keypad. So you needed the code to open the door, but you didn't need to steal the keys from inside the department or anything like that. The assumption was that some teenagers took the expedition For a joyride. Maybe they jimmied the lock, maybe they smashed a window, maybe the car wasn't as secured as it should have been. So, Sergeant Redburn decided to go up Anvil Mountain, which would give him a good view of the town. He told the oxygen show Fatal Frontier that his thought was the first thing teenagers would do with a police car would be to play with the lights. From higher ground, he might be able to see them, but he didn't see anything. Redburn had his personal vehicle with him, which also had a police radio in it. So he heard when Officer Matthew Owens radioed at 2.50 a.m. that he found the stolen vehicle at Bessie Pit, which is a mining pit owned by Alaska Gold. And it was outside the town of Nome. Redburn headed straight toward the pit. While driving there just two minutes after his first call about the stolen vehicle, Officer Owens radioed in again that he was being shot at. So Sergeant Redburn made his way a bit more carefully towards the pit because obviously he didn't want to get shot at himself. When Redburn arrived at the pit, he saw two cars. One was the stolen three two one, one and the other was the vehicle Officer Owens had driven out there. Redburn carefully made his way down to the cars, not hearing anything, not hearing any shots or any people, and, He looked around for Officer Owens, but didn't see him. He then cleared the vehicles to make sure the officer wasn't hurt in one of them. And then he went back to his vehicle. He then backed out towards the entrance and found the chief of police up at the entrance. And while they were sitting there, Officer Owens showed up on foot. He was uninjured. They then sealed off the area, and when the sun came up, they got a helicopter in the air to see if they could find the person who dumped the vehicle hiding out somewhere. They didn't find anyone at the scene, and Vehicle 321 was towed to the garage to be searched. The Alaska Crime Lab technician was still investigating Sonia's murder, so they also had her process this vehicle. The driver's side window had been smashed, and the glass was on the seat on top of an envelope. Inside the envelope were two things, a note and Sonia Ivanov's pass to the local rec center. The pass had both her name and her photograph on it, so they were sure it was hers. The note read, Pigs, I hate cops. I hate every one of you. Sonia was just a person in the wrong place at the wrong time. I do not know her. As you can see, it was easy for me to take your pig car keys right there. It was not her fault. She thought I was a pig and shit just happened. She was just a person. And I just wanted to see if I could that night. Every one of you should be more careful. I watch every move you make. Leave me alone and I will leave you alone. I will also shoot you in the head if you get close. The ID found in the envelope appeared to be provided as proof that this was coming from the real killer, since Sonya had that ID on her when she went missing. There were no fingerprints or DNA found on the envelope, the note, or the pass to the rec center. So here's the thing this letter is the perfect example of an internal contradiction. The letter writer claimed to hate cops. They claimed to have stolen the car that night to prove they also stole it on the night Sonia went missing. They were taunting the police. But in doing so, they were exonerating the two police officers who were on the investigator's radar. And they just so happened to do this right before those same officers were going to give full interviews and sit for polygraphs. If this person hated the cops so much, why not let one of them go down for it, or at least have their reputations ruined with just the suspicion they were involved? Why try to prove the cops didn't do it if you hated the police so much? This really only makes logical sense if it was staged to throw the investigation away from the police department. Figuring out that it was likely staged wasn't the problem. It was figuring out who staged it. The next morning on September 24th, Officer Stan Piscoya got on the plane and flew to Anchorage. He passed his polygraph. Officer Matthew Owens did not even get on the plane. After having been shot at the night before, he said he was taking the day to seek some help for the after effects of being shot at. But the issue is the state police were not told this in advance. They expected him in Anchorage. Officer Owen said that the police chief told him he could reschedule this appointment, but the chief said he didn't say that. So there was a little confusion there, but they still made arrangements for Matthew Owens to go to Anchorage on the 28th, and he did show up for this one. And those extra few days of the investigation had led the investigators to more strongly suspect him over officer Stan Pescoia. They had realized through their investigation that there was a pretty big hole in officer Owens's account, of the night Sonia went missing. From 12.53 a.m. when he responded to a domestic disturbance until 2.50 when he drove Officer Pascoya home, Officer Owens didn't have any logged calls. Matthew Owens said he could actually account for most of that time. He had someone do a ride-along from one ten until one twenty. And then he supervised a bar closing around 1.45, and there was another officer who could back that up. This narrowed the window of opportunity quite a bit. It would mean Matthew had from 1.25 until 1.45 to pick up Sonia, drive her five minutes out of town, kill her, hide all of her clothing and items, and then drive five minutes back to town. That's a very tight timeline, but it is interesting that the only time he had no alibi for was the exact window Sonia went missing. And the time he said he was at the bar closing wasn't exactly set in stone. He was saying what time he was there. He didn't have it logged or have a GPS record of it or any security camera catching him getting there around 1.45. So if this point on the timeline stays flexible, he may have had more time than he claimed. And then it didn't help that Matthew Owens then failed his polygraph test. On October 1st, the state troopers fully took over the investigation and the Associated Press reported that it was because they had more resources. But the timing here seems to point to another reason for an outside agency to take over. This was three days after a Nome police officer became the prime suspect. One thing the investigators did next was to do a recreation of what Officer Owen said happened the night he was shot at. I mean, it's clear that the stolen vehicle was linked to the killer because Sonia's ID card was left there as proof. So if Matthew Owens killed Sonia, he would have also been the one to stage the stolen vehicle and his arrival on the scene to be the one who found it. They used a rental vehicle as a stand-in for the stolen SUV, They realized, based on a number of factors, that the cruiser would have been backed into the spot it was found in. Why would someone dumping a stolen vehicle, some joyrider, back it into the spot? Matthew also said he walked to the front of vehicle 321 to check it out, and then he was walking back to his own vehicle when he was shot at. He said he ran to the south, so they had another officer do just this during the recreation. In the area where Matthew said he ran was a rocky berm, and the person reenacting this ended up scuffing up his shoes and the lower part of his pants. Matthew hadn't had any of those marks on him that night. They also found just one piece of evidence that a gun was fired in the area recently, and it was an expended shotgun shell. It was a 12-gauge buckshot, and had the gun been fired at Matthew from that spot, the investigators believed he absolutely would have been hit. So would the car, and they would have found buckshot there but they didn't. Matthew still denied any involvement and said that things happened the way he said they did. He believed the letter was put in the car, possibly to frame him, but the investigators thought it was the other way around, that Matthew put the note in the car to direct the investigation away from him. Over the course of the investigation, the troopers learned about some other behaviors and statements made earlier that, if true, implicated Matthew even more. For one thing, Matthew was not on duty when Sonia's body was found, yet he showed up at the scene anyway. The location had not been put out on the radio, which is not uncommon. I don't know if this was the thinking here, but when there is a crime scene, when the family hasn't been notified yet, or when they don't want the public or the media who monitor the radio to know something's going on, They just don't put it out. So if an officer is off-duty, they would have no way of knowing where the crime scene was. And they checked. There were no logs or records showing that the police or the fire department sent the location over the radio. Yet Matthew knew where to go, even when he wasn't on duty. And for some reason, Matthew showed up on a four-wheeler with his four-year-old son. Now, when I first read he showed up with his son, I thought maybe he had been out writing with his four-year-old and just happened to see the police presence and went to go check it out. But that's not the case. Matthew said he learned the location from a volunteer firefighter and that's why he went out there. When this volunteer firefighter was asked about it later, she said she never told Matthew where the scene was. So the idea that Matthew purposely went there with his four-year-old actually sticks out to me more. He was supposedly told where a body was and he showed up with a young child. That seems wildly inappropriate to say the least. Why was he so eager to be at that scene that he couldn't just wait until he was on duty or when his son was with Matthew's estranged wife during her parenting time? The investigators did go speak with Matthew's estranged wife, Trin, and that's when they heard about another odd instance. Trin said that on August 12th, Matthew asked her to take their son earlier than the usual time to switch custody. It was around 4.30 p.m., and Matthew said it was because he needed to go to work early because a girl was missing. She remembered the day because it was Matthew's birthday. This is significant because 4.30 was 45 minutes before Sonia was reported missing. So how did Matthew know someone was missing? Matthew's defense to this is that Trin was misremembering the day because it was actually August 19th, a week later, that he asked her to take him early And that was because he was doing an evidence search, not a search for Sonia. Matthew was re-interviewed on October 23rd, and the investigators made it pretty clear to him that they thought he had killed Sonia. He denied it, and they released him. The next day, the 24th, Matthew went to the bank twice, and then one of his family members called an airline asking about flight information. Afraid Matthew was about to go on the run, the state troopers applied for and secured an arrest warrant. At 6.40 p.m. on October 25th, Matthew was arrested and charged initially with official misconduct. About a week later, a grand jury indicted him on the additional charges of first-degree murder for killing 19-year-old Sonia Ivanov and tampering with evidence for the whole stolen vehicle performance. After news broke that a known police officer was arrested for murder, women called the police and reported that Matthew had picked them up and sexually assaulted them, mostly through coercion and sometimes by force. And he did it while he was on duty. Two women reported that it happened more than once. These women had two things in common. One was that they were indigenous and two, they were out in the downtown area drinking. Matthew Owens told them that no one would believe a drunk Native woman over a police officer, and they believed him that they wouldn't be believed, so they didn't report it. And a 2019 internal investigation into the police response to sex crimes in Nome showed that reporting it may not have done anything. They found multiple instances of women, almost always indigenous, calling dispatch to report being sexually assaulted. And no officer ever showed up to take their report in person. Other times, the women would name their attacker, and the suspect would not even be questioned. Two women who accused Matthew Owens of sexual assault did eventually sue the city of Nome for what happened and settled out of court. Now, these disclosures of these women coming forward gave the investigators more than just a civil lawsuit. It gave them a theory of the crime. They believed that Matthew Owens picked Sonia Ivanhoff up, assuming she was intoxicated as she was walking away from the Nome bars. After Matthew got her in the car, he propositioned her for sex. Sonia said no, and that's when he would have realized she wasn't drunk, which was established on her autopsy when her talk screen came back clear. Sonia wasn't in as vulnerable of a position as he initially thought. Now he had an issue. He had a woman in his car who was sober. She didn't have previous run-ins with the police. Sonia had, to put it bluntly, credibility. Whether Sonia threatened to report him or if he just assumed she would, Officer Owens had a witness to his misconduct, and he decided to kill her, execution style, to silence her. That's how it happened if the state's theory is correct. It was just a theory because Matthew Owens maintained his innocence and never made any admissions. The circumstantial case against him, in the view of the state, was strong, but they hoped to get some more direct evidence that pointed to Matthew's involvement. After his arrest, a tip came in that helped them do just that. They had a few witnesses who said Matthew went to a hunting camp. At Coffee Creek. One person said he had some gloves that looked brand new that he burned, and someone else said that Matthew burned clothing. Since none of Sonya's clothes had been found, this seemed pretty significant. The investigators went out to the camp to sift through the burn pit they found metal rivets, buttons, and bra clasps. So it was clear that someone burned women's clothing in that pit. The shoe rivets were from the brand Skechers, which was the same shoes Sonia was wearing when she went missing. Skechers are a super common brand. But then they found a button that said Tilt on it. And Tilt was also the brand of jeans Sonia was likely wearing what are the odds they would find the same shoe and jeans brand? Also in this pit were some keys. One looks like it would fit the lock at Sonia's apartment. The key, however, was damaged from the heat, so they made a replica of it, and it did fit in the lock, but it would not turn. So it's not definitive that this was Sonia's key. It is possible that it was, and the heat had warped the original too much to get a good replica, but could have been isn't the same thing as evidence. However, another key was found that did belong to Michael Owens, who just happened to be Matthew Owens's uncle. So going into the trial in early 2005, the state felt this case was strong. They argued that the lack of forensic evidence was because Matthew Owens had been a cop. He knew what forensic countermeasures to take. The state did present a possible murder weapon. A .22 shell casing was found near the body, and it was compared to a police weapon that Matthew would have had access to. The state tool mark and firearm examiner ruled that, based on the markings, it could be the murder weapon. But the defense had an expert to counter this, saying that the gun was definitely not the murder weapon. The state also had Florence testify about seeing Sonia getting into a police vehicle. There were two vehicles in use that night, the older one driven by Matthew Owens and the newer one driven by Stan Pascoya. Florence's initial statement said that it was the new car. It is possible she didn't mean the newer of the three vehicles, but more broadly, the newer style that they were using. It really isn't clear which vehicle Florence saw, and she never saw the driver. Florence did say she saw running boards, which Matthew's vehicle had, and Stan's did not. But she didn't say this right away. It was only months later that the investigators specifically asked her about that. She said she saw the running boards, but honestly, I would feel more confident in this had she been asked it way back when she first contacted the police. The defense used this unclear identification of the vehicle as a piece of reasonable doubt. It was just as likely it was a different vehicle as it was Matthew's. And how did Florence even see the running boards from where she was sitting? Matthew's defense attorney has an old blog still up, which I will be linking in my sources. And on it, he points out the most important points of the defense case. And so we'll go over them here. The defense did point to the very tight timeline and the sheer lack of evidence. The blue paint on the branch did not match the police vehicle. The tire tracks, which had been rained on, also couldn't be definitively matched. The defense even questioned whether Sonia went missing on Sunday night. That was the last time Timmery saw her, but there were two people who said they saw her on Monday night. One was someone who worked at a mining pit who said he saw Sonia out with other people. When he saw her missing poster before her body was found, he called the police with the sighting and said it was on Monday night. So this isn't a memory weeks later, but rather within a few days. The people Sonia was allegedly with have not been identified, and the man who said he saw her didn't know her before this. So I would say this is an unconfirmed sighting. The other person who said he saw Sonia on Monday was Officer Stan Pascoya. When Timory went to the station to report Sonia missing on Tuesday, Stan said that he had seen her last night, which would have been Monday. The state argued that Stan was just confused. But then he said it again when he testified in support of a search warrant. Memories of witnesses can be faulty, particularly if you're talking about someone who works overnights like it appears Stan did. But there is also some physical evidence the defense brought in that does give you pause. I'm not saying I would rest a not guilty verdict on it, but it is worth considering. There was that pool of blood in the roadway near Sonia's body. It was not a little amount. It was a pool of blood. Yet from the time Sonia was last seen getting into the police car until Monday evening, nearly an inch of rain fell, according to Matthew's defense attorney. Wouldn't the pool of blood have washed away? The defense brought in an expert you may have actually heard of if you followed the Rebecca Zahau case because she testified in that civil suit. Lisa DeMeo is a forensic expert who is specifically trained in bloodstain evidence, patterns, and impression evidence. Impression evidence would be things like footprints, shoe prints, tire treads, and fingerprints. DeMeo testified that the tire tracks were left there after the rain stopped but before the blood pool was there. So Sonia's blood was not there until after the rain, meaning no earlier than Monday evening. If this was all true, the Monday night sightings and the rain stopping before the blood was deposited in the road, then the state had the entirely wrong timeline, way wrong. It could have been off by 24 hours or more. And the medical examiner admitted he couldn't tell when Sonia died due to environmental factors. All that said, there was no evidence of where Sonia was from when she told Timmery she was heading home because she didn't feel well all through Monday day into the evening until the rain stopped. The defense did not show where she was or have anyone who knew her testify to having been with her. Of course, the defense didn't have to prove any of this. They just had to insert enough reasonable doubt to say that their theory was as likely or maybe as probable as the state's theory. The defense wanted to show that the state's case just was not strong enough to convict and that there were other possible suspects, including people Sonia knew and other officers who would have had access to all the same vehicles, all the same guns that Matthew Owens had. The jury took the case, and after 10 days of deliberation, they came back without a verdict. It was a hung jury. In checking with the jury, it appeared that the vote was 10 in favor of guilty, one against, and apparently one abstained when they took their votes, which I didn't even know was an option. It has been reported in a couple of places that the person who voted not guilty either went to church with Matthew Owens or had seen him at church, and that may have influenced their decision. But it's also possible They just really didn't think the evidence was strong enough and they were not going to be swayed by the majority. But the state took that majority guilty votes as a good sign going into retrial. But first, the defense wanted a change of venue. They had asked for one before the first trial and it was denied. This time, the judge granted it, though not quite as far away as the defense wanted. The defense wanted the trial away from the Bering Strait area Entirely to hold it somewhere like Anchorage or Fairbanks. The judge denied this, opting instead to send it to Kotzebue, which is north of Nome. And like most of the area, there is no road to get in there. The defense, according to the attorney's blog, sent out a pre trial opinion survey to the town and found that 60% of the people in the town already thought Matthew Owens was guilty. They also had issues with people knowing Sonia's family. One potential juror's wife was from Unacolete, and he felt pressure even before the trial began that people expected him to come back with a guilty verdict. Another juror's husband was distantly related to the Ivanovs, but she didn't know the family herself. But even with this, the defense could not get the judge to move the trial any farther away. The second trial, held in the fall of 2005, was much the same as the first, with one key difference. A man named Dealey Blackshear came forward mid-trial with a story he had not told before. Dealey said he had spoken with Charlotte Calandrelli, who was Matthew Owens's landlord. She allegedly told Dealey that she saw Sonia's ID and wallet in Matthew's house. When she asked him about it, he said he was bringing it to the police station to enter it into evidence. Dealey said he never came forward because Charlotte said she was going to report it herself. It wasn't his story to tell, so he didn't think anything of it until he found out Charlotte never contacted the police. That's when Dealey called the Nome police. If Charlotte had seen these things, she had to have known they were important and already chose not to come forward. So instead of going to her directly to ask her about it, the investigators got what is called a glass warrant in Alaska. I've never heard this term before, so I looked it up. It comes from an Alaskan case, the state v. Glass, which set the requirements around getting a warrant to record a conversation, All jurisdictions have laws like these, but because it's a state case, this term for it is unique to Alaska. After securing the glass warrant, the investigators had Dealey call Charlotte while they recorded it. The goal was to get Charlotte to discuss the ID and wallet with Dealey. When Dealey brought it up on this call, however, Charlotte did not confirm she saw the items, but she also didn't deny it. The state still wanted to admit this into evidence, even though they didn't have Charlotte's direct testimony, but they did want to have Dealey testify. At this point, however, they had already closed their case and the defense had started. So the defense objected to interrupting their case to allow this new evidence in, and the judge agreed. But the state was allowed to have Dealey and Charlotte both testify during rebuttal. Dealey took the stand to say what he said, Charlotte said, and then Charlotte got on the stand to say she didn't say it and hadn't seen the items. I'm not sure if the jury saw the testimony as canceling itself out or a wash, or if they found one more credible than the other, or if they really considered this testimony much at all, because this was a long trial with 74 witnesses to go through their testimony and all the evidence. And that was a lot for a jury. And it was also a whole lot for Sonia's family. They really suffered through this. They had to relive this not just once, but twice, and hope that they would get justice for Sonia through it. And this time in early December 2005, the jury did come to a unanimous decision. They found Matthew Owens guilty of first-degree murder and tampering with evidence. The official misconduct charge, which was a misdemeanor, had already been dropped previously. At sentencing, the prosecutor said he believed they had caught a serial killer after his first kill and painted 30-year-old Matthew Owens as a dangerous predator. He asked for a 99-year sentence for the murder, since, in Alaska, that is the penalty for killing a police officer, The prosecutor argued that a police officer who kills on duty should get the same fate. Matthew spoke at sentencing against the advice of his counsel to once again proclaim his innocence. In the end, the state got what they asked for. Matthew Owens was given a 99-year sentence with another two years for the tampering with evidence charge. He would be eligible for parole after 34 years, which puts it in about 2037. In 2007, the Sonia Ivanov Act was passed in Alaska, which mandates a 99-year prison sentence for police officers who use their role as a police officer to facilitate murder. The sentence the prosecutor had to ask for in Sonia's case is now the law. As for Matthew Owens, he has continued to maintain his innocence through all of his appeals, which have so far all been denied. He has been transferred to the federal prison system and is currently incarcerated in Arizona. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.